0: I didn't hear the little thing go ding, ding, ding. Are we still on?
1: Oh, Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scoop Obsessed episode 256 was recorded live September 17th, 2015. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the west side of the great state of Michigan where we have lovely fall weather. It's hard to believe. That fall is coming, the days are getting shorter, but it's still plenty warm, and I imagine the water's nice as well, but I wouldn't know because I can't get wet. Joining me this week is we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac?
0: I'm doing very well today, and like you said earlier for yourself, it's been a hectic week, uh, and it is getting darker. The, the dive that started tonight at 6 will definitely finish up in the dark, just like it did last week, the week before. So yeah. I'll hopefully maybe by the end of this we'll see Jim... You know, since he's out there diving with the group tonight. And maybe they'll have some tales of Daring Do, or at least pictures of what they found tonight.
1: Looking forward to hearing what they've found. And also, we need an update from up
0: north. Since and uh, that's true. I did see Jim during the week. I uh-huh. told him to send me at least one good picture from each of the days, and then I would update the club site, which is about a month behind. So that'll help us get back up into the, the current month.
1: Yep, that's mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. So you can keep an eye out for Mac's posts when he gets those going. And we're going to jump into Scuba News. And thanks to Mac again for contributing some articles. I think you had about a, almost half of them this time. Also in the chat room we have Wheaton Diver Surfer George coming in there. And we had a guest four who popped in for a little bit. Uh, don't forget to give us feedback on what you'd like to see us to do. If you're interested in video, uh, if we should be doing a chat room that's live. I'm still working out the details of streaming. I'm not quite sure which which direction we're going to head or we might do all of them. It just might be some weeks will be live audio and some will do video. We'll always have an audio stream, but I think some of the video weeks it might be a little different. I'm not yeah, you know, it's one of those things where video doesn't always play great on audio. Well, the first article up and I've kind of grouped them based on your suggestions, Mac, but we have a couple of medical related. We have a Dan article and it's the effects of aging on your cardiovascular system.
0: Now, last week we had talked about as we were getting to be older. So I went back through Dan a little bit, looking at some of the current items I have. And my, my rant was going to be is if you're not a Dan member, you really should be. And even if you are not a member, you should go to their, their dive site. And again, uh, if we didn't, we'll give you the link for that, uh, the Diver Alert Network, because... Almost everything's available to you, whether or not you're a member, meaning all their verbiage, all their training, all their words of wisdom. And this happened to be one I thought was good because in our club, we are definitely getting older. Uh, We're not quite the geriatrics, except there are quite a few over 60, a good number 65 and over, (laughs) myself included. But the article here, uh, Effects of Aging it really doesn't tell you anything you don't know but it puts it right in front of you and the part I enjoyed was we're doing a lot of river diving river diving and current can be stressful and one of the significant items there that we're talking about is what should your heart rate be be for this type of diving and what kind of stress you're undergoing so my, my part there and we're not going to really talk too much about it other than you really need to go to the site you need to look that up and I think you're going to find it very interesting, no matter what your age.
1: Oh my goodness. I'm looking at this maximum heart rate by age. Uh huh. And I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> I know that my maximum gets pretty close to that limit.
0: Well, it, it's sort of funny as you, you notice there's two categories that they said, if you're doing what you believe is right. And the other one is, and if you're a smoker and you've got, again, six, 7% difference in what your heart rate can be because you're a, you're a smoker. It's a real good thing about you really shouldn't smoke, people. And it goes into the next one, too, which is the um, article on neurology, you know, doing an assessment. Mm-hmm. I get a CNS hit or something. And it's a quiz. It's like 10, 12 questions. You take it. And it's like, who knows what you get? And if you don't like your score, you do it over until you get 100. The nice part is you reinforce what you do know and what you correct, what you don't know. And I liked it because it's a good reminder of what to do if you're doing a neuro check of your buddy or yourself, not to mention it's good for, you know, you're around older people, like older divers, even. And if somebody had a stroke, because a lot of the checks you're doing will also indicate that obviously if you haven't been diving and all of a sudden you have a droopy lip, yeah, You know, your face gives a little bit of a twitch. Your right side or something is, is getting numb. There, there's some items to look for. This helps you reinforce what you should be looking for from a dive buddy and from your normal buddy away from the boat even. So again, take the quizzes they give you. It's a really good learning experience. Again, to me, you can't, it, you know, reinforcement. So good things to do.
1: Yeah, I've just done a few of the first questions, and these are good ones. I think I know the answer, but I, I won't be sure until I complete it.
0: Yeah, and generally you can do an educated guess because most of us have had something with this. But it distresses me if I can't go through and if I can't get an, at least an 80 every time, I feel like I insulted myself because I should have known this. And, of course, on this one, I did do better than 80, so I, I feel better. But 80 is my threshold if I don't do at least 80. I And I definitely go back and I reacquaint myself with the correct answers. And sometimes I don't always agree with their answers, which then makes me go and check it for myself to find out why they select a certain answer. Can't help but learn. Very true. And from there, we went on to we got referenced one time that we didn't talk enough about environmental issues. And I, I pretty much agree we didn't. And we're making an effort now to at least highlight something in every presentation that we do. And I picked the ones for Michigan because that's where we're from. And the disturbing factor is if you really get into environmental issues, there are more things out there than you can shake a stick at. And none of them are going to be cheap and they're not going to be easy. And as much as we're aware of invasive species and how we bring them in, it amazes the blazes out of me that we're doing not more to stop it as opposed to trying to correct it after it's here. And as far as that goes, Michigan has over 250 different invasive species in our waters and waterways. How can you possibly eradicate that which was not here before? And it's going to definitely cost a lot of money. The three that came up today that I did not know about was once called Parrot Feather Water Milfoil. And milfoil around here is really a pain in the ass, and it's been clogging up our, our local lakes and ponds. It you know clogs the waterways, impedes your recreational commercial commercial boating activities, and all of them do the same. They screw up the native aquatic plants, which then screw up our breeding areas for our aquatic animals. They also provide breeding areas for mosquitoes and other insects that we really don't want to do. And I don't go into the detail of you know how we can prevent them and all that, because it's the same as for all of it. You gotta wash the boat when you leave it. Yeah. You gotta wash all your fishing gear when you leave it, you know, leave the body of water. And, and like they were talking about the, um, we're going to get to the, the mud snails. Those guys can last 26 days in just moist environments. So if you don't go, do a good job of cleaning up, you're going to transport them from one pond to the lake, to the pond, to something else. The second new one is New Zealand mud snail. Now, I thought this was quite interesting. And in retrospect, I go back and say, have I seen any of these? They're, they're really small. They're an eighth of an inch long. And they had a good picture of a penny. And by the penny, they had probably eight or nine of those. doesn't even cover the space of a penny, so they're very small. But now that you're aware of them, when you're out there diving, you're going to start looking for them and say, is the area I'm diving in, or are we having some problems? And their comment here was um, they said they cluster in high densities, compete with the native snails and other macroinvertebrates for food and space. Uh, They disrupt the food chain of prized fish like trout and salmon. As, and they operate as grazers. And what they do there is they move algae from rocks in near the waterways that normally feed insects, that mayflies and stoneflies that our other fish then eat. You don't have that. You don't have our fish. And they've been found as recently and as close to us as Pier Marquette River near Lenington. That's right up the street from us, basically. Yeah. And the third item, the, the name is really weird. It's called River Snot and, uh, or Didmo. And I'm not even going to try the Latin name. But it's a freshwater algae that under the right conditions can grow into thick mats that cover the river bottom, and the mats look and feel like wet wool. And, the, and that's why it's called you know, river snot, though it's not actually slimy. Okay. It's not a threat to human you know, health, but the formation of the mats crowd out, obviously, the biological and valuable algae, and it covers up the, the areas for the invertebrates that are important to, you know, for the other fish, such as our freshwater lobster. Crayfish. Crayfish. Right. And, you know, we, we, we know now that when we're out there diving our rivers, we're already looking. At what's the proliferation of crayfish? What are we seeing? Are we seeing some fresh clams? Are we seeing our regular good snails? And are we seeing turtles? All of those are good, edica- or good indications of the health of the river. So right there, we're talking about a milfoil, a bud snail and a type of algae that we need to be aware of. That's new in the last year. Meaning it was known about, but now it's becoming more known, which meant now we got a problem. Yeah, yeah. and I'll leave the next one to you, sir.
1: Well, and, and, but the thing with all those invasive species, uh, what what can be done as an individual to help reduce them? As you mentioned, one was the cleaning up of boats, but once they're in a body of water, is there really any any way of combating? Does it eventually a the native species there learn to adjust and take them on, or?
0: Well, what you've got to do is one of the big ones is identification and reporting. So the government knows, oh, by the way, it is spreading. How fast it's spreading, because if we don't tell them, they won't know. Yeah. They, it's they... like the, the kits that we're, we haven't yet received.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, that's going to be one way. If we were able to do samples, send this stuff in, they'd say, oh, my God, look where we're finding this stuff. So we, we need to be doing that. And also we'd be able to tell them how quick we've seen it grow. What's the, you know, it's like uh, the last couple of years, especially last year, the lamprey in our river there in, uh, in Niles and in St. Joe. We had not seen lamprey for a long time. Then all of a sudden I'm swimming and it's like, wow, there goes one. Oh, wow. Look at that fish. There's one on that. And if they, you know, they weren't treating our river in that area because they had no clue we had, and, and it sure looks like a uh, a blooming, I don't know what to word for it when I have a lot of... Uh, Lampreys come in, but anyway, when you have an inflow that's a lot more than it has been. They yeah. need to know that, otherwise they don't know what rivers or lakes or ponds to treat.
1: Yes, yeah, because they have been fairly effective over the years with a variety of techniques for lamprey. Yeah. Well, kind of related to this environmental front is we've got the battle over fish farming in the Great Lakes. And we talked about this probably about six, eight weeks ago in At principle, at the time, I was thinking, yeah, fish farming, your way of using the water. Uh, But this is something to consider. Uh, They said that in 1982, uh, in Canada, Gord Cole built a Norwegian-style fish cage on the far eastern end of Lake Huron in Perry Sound, which was one of the first to use the technology in fresh water to produce food. And that has remained to be one of the oldest continuously operated fish farms in North America. Uh, Many producers follow Cole's lead. In Huron's North Channel, around uh, Manitoulin Island, modest industry sprung up and to produce about $16 million worth of rainbow trout annually, and those trout are sold to restaurants and groceries. The industry is highly regulated, and the waste from the fish pens is found to starve water in Lake uh, Cloak Channel of oxygen and contribute to algae blooms. Uh, since the experiment in Ontario, no U.S. state has followed with that type of farming in the Great Lakes. And currently in Michigan, we have a policy debate going on whether to open the Great Lakes to farming operations. Uh, Lake Michigan Sea Grant produced a report that suggested a billion-dollar industry is possible if it was allowed. Supporters say Michigan is in a perfect position to be a world leader in freshwater aqu- aquaculture, engineering, and manufacturing that would accompany uh, this growing part of the world's food economy. Critics are countering that the Great Lakes is no place for uh net pen fish farms because of the higher risk of disease and water pollution that accommodates the method. Environmental groups such as uh, sport anglers have come out against it. Uh, Even one of the few fish farmers in Michigan, Russ Allen, who grows shrimp in an indoor facility in Okemos, is on the Michigan Aquaculture Association. He says Great Lakes is no place for this type of fish production. Net pen fish farming consists of a higher environmental impact than other methods because fish waste is allowed to freely flow into the surrounding water. There's good aquaculture and there's bad aquaculture, Alan said. Netpen aquaculture in the Great Lakes is bad aquaculture. Many problems with these farms have, is having so many fish populations in one spot, Alan says. The lakes are unforgiving paired with the oceans where tides can wash the waste away. He says that when things go wrong, like in the uh, Le Cloak Channel, the changes to the lake will be slow to heal. Last year, controversy erupted in Michigan when trout farmer in Harriet and near Manistee proposed expanding production of the Grayling fish hatchery. The farm in Grayling sits alongside the Osaba River, just above a stretch known as Holy Water. Water flows through where fish are raised, empties out into the river. Dan Vogler runs a company owned hatchery as a historic site for tourists and produces a small number of rainbow trout. He plans to go to commercial scale, less than 20,000 pounds. A fish to a hundred thousand pounds upstream from the most revered stretch of the trout water in Michigan has drawn scrutiny and legal challenges from the Sierra Club anglers of the Osabo Conservation Group. So, based on this, you know, I, I think we there's a, there's definitely a place for aquaculture in Michigan, but we have to be aware of what the waste is.
0: Well, I'm I'm curious about that. The one aspect about low oxygen content can be overcome by using bubblers. Right now. I've really never thought about the fish waste concentrated. It it seems like that's extra nutrients as it is making you have algae blooms, which are detrimental, uh, which made me then think, okay, what if you do have, and you do have them already, uh, fish hatcheries inland? What do they do with the waste product? Or do they make a pond and after so much time they put it in a new pond and cover over that one? Or do they suck out the the bottom and use that as fertilizer in a regular field? So I, I was curious what they did inland that wouldn't apply to being out there in the uh, in the Great Lakes.
1: About a year and a half ago, I did extensive study on it, and it shows you how old I'm getting, and I can't remember most of it, because I've been looking in the, I was looking in the aquaculture, uh, hydroponics, aquaponics as a way, and the nice, and for people who don't know, you have hydroponics where you're growing food without soil and water, you're providing food the no, nutrients directly in the water, you have microbial rea- uh, bacteria and reactions that are going on. Uh, that provide the nutrients the plants need, and that's recirculated. You have uh, aquaponics, where it's the same thing except that you have a tank of fish. The waste from the fish is going and feeding the, the uh, microbial uh, bacteria and the plants, and you've got this cycle. And one of the reasons why that was attractive, especially if you have fish where it's a good crop, is that it takes that waste and it keeps it from going into rivers and streams. That can happen with uh, fish farming. Uh, and Michigan has some pretty good rules on it, and there's some documentations if you go to the Michigan government website. Uh, I just I can't remember right now whether they had to treat it. I, I believe there are some tests that have to happen. You definitely have to have permits. When you're doing uh, that uh, aquatic, what, what are they calling it in here? So I'm using the right term.
0: Well, I knew that I do know they have a lot of phosphorus from the waste products, but I also know that they do have some inland in, in a huge factory building that they built pools in in Goshen, Indiana that they're, they're growing fish and doing very, very well.
1: Yes. But well, I, and,
0: I, I, I do not know how they get rid of their waste products and what do they do with it.
1: Yeah. And in, and that's kind of like my dream job. I, I, I've, I've loved, I love just doing that stuff with fish. Uh, but the, uh, you do have to treat the waste in Michigan. If you're raising fish commercially, there's a list of native and non-native, and you have to have a plan for what happens if, like, say, say you've got open ponds and the ponds flood. You have to have a way of protecting the fish from entering the native waters.
0: Well, that's how the carp got into the to the Mississippi to begin with. You know that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you had, uh, and some people think it was done intentionally. Uh, the carp, especially the Asian ones, were brought over because you had people who had come to the U.S. from Asia who that was uh, in their diet, and it was a delicacy, and they preferred that fish. So they would have them imported in, and they would eat them, and you used to be able to buy them live. Well, and they what, used
0: to be used in ponds to help get out the um, old vegetation. That was the original. Oh,
1: role. okay. That's the one you're talking about. Yes. yeah cause up, then
0: again, when that flooded, there yeah, goes a
1: yeah, because yeah, cause up in Illinois what, they, what they're blaming it on is that the uh, the fish trade were selling them live. So you could go to your shop, they're swimming around a tank, you picked them up, he handed it to you. And the thought was that some people were stocking ponds and rivers with them because that's what they did at home. They would just go into the river, fish them, pull them out, and they had some food. So they they think that's what, that's, what they've accused is that's going on. Uh, So you have to take that into effect when you're you're raising fish in in Michigan. Uh, Typically, it's tougher. If it's a non-native species that can survive in our environment all year round, that's where it gets tricky. Uh, There's kind of a loophole, which if you look at a lot of people who are doing aquaponics now, they're doing tilapia. And tilapia is considered an aquarium fish, so you can actually transport those interstate. Where native species, you can't transport interstate without a permit. You have to have a permit to bring them in kind of ironic, but because it's a tropical fish, it can't survive through the winter in any of the bodies of water that naturally occur in Michigan, Uh, you don't have to have uh, a permit for those. So some people will raise those as food and they're very easy. I mean, that's one thing, as long as you keep the water warm and you have a fairly decent balance in your your water chemicals, uh, they're not too bad. But I'm I'm fascinated with that because I believe in, I think agriculture is eventually going to become very local again. Right now we're shipping stuff all over the world. And it works for some large scale, but I think just for sustainability and just efficiency and convenience. It just doesn't make sense to be shipping, you know, 30-cent food 2,000 miles. And I I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't seem practical.
0: Well, I'm sure we're going to see more on both the issues of invasive species and how do we use our lakes for the betterment of mankind. Yeah. That leads us into the next item. I talk about divers now. We don't always talk about the gloom and doom because we know diving has its safety hazards, meaning if you don't do it right. You can definitely hurt yourself and die. Uh, there's a couple we're going to talk about as an overview because there's a, a different aspect I'm going to look at into them in a minute. But this came out of uh, Plymouth, England, and it gave two examples, and these are current. Now I'm going to quote it here a little bit. 25-year-old diver was pulled from the water near Devil's Point. Remains in intensive care. Was rescued from the water yesterday afternoon and rushed to the hospital. Several onlookers called the emergency services after seeing the diver struggling with strong tides in the area. Uh, today, police confirmed his age. Said he remains in intensive care. Uh, following up on that, uh, they talked about uh, the life the inter lifeboat found the casualty in the water in apparent distress. It Wasn't very well. As a result, we don't know if something somebody else was with him. Normal procedure for divers to dive with a buddy. Not common to cross come across someone diving on their own. And at the time, we didn't understand the situation and why he was where he was. So, item there, I suppose, is what would you do? You normally are used to seeing two guys. You only find one. Does that mean there's another man down? Especially so. So he he
1: he comes up unconscious. Yeah. So you're wondering, do we need to look for another diver?
0: Right. And and the other aspect is struggling in the water. Strong current, so you then think, was he going into an area way past his capabilities for current because we're, we're talking about river currents a little while ago for your cardiac aspect. did something happen because of the high current? did he struggle? Did he have some kind of medical issue? The second is, and I, I do solo diving a lot should I therefore on my on my um, dive flag or my dive buoy, should I have some kind of device or information there that make people know that, hey, there's only one diver here, not two, so they don't spend time looking for somebody else who's not there? It's going to make me think maybe I will start doing that on my solo buoy. You know, I'm, uh, th- you mentioned
1: that, and I think that's an excellent idea. If you had, like if each diving buoy, it should represent a certain number of divers because there's times where we'll go in the water and we might have two or three divers using the same buoy. In that case, we maybe we should come up with a method of coming up with the, to mark how many are represented. Uh, I know that through Boy Scouts, and probably many other organizations do this as well, is that there is a board where you keep track of who's in the water and who they're buddied up with. So it, maybe that would also be something that should be considered now. And just a random drop-and-dive that may seem like overkill, but if you've got a situation where... Uh, we've we've got six seven divers in the water. Uh, that can be handy because the sooner you realize that somebody's missing, the sooner a search could start.
0: Right, and, and this is why um, in last week's newsletter I made a notation in it for the club is we're starting at daytime when we're diving the river, and everybody does not have a flag. Some people are diving off the boat, meaning using the boat anchor line as a reference or their drag line. So yeah. there's possibility. I know I take a float everywhere. If I'm solo and it's less than sixty feet, I take one on a wreck because I'm not doing penetrations. You know, I may have a problem, but you're going to be—you you will find my body because it's tagline to that flag. Yeah. But by the same token, I think I will give some consideration that if I have someone diving with me with my flag, because we're you know tagged together or something, that will be on my buoy saying, "Oh, one diver, two diver." That's something I have to think about. I'm wondering and if we could,
1: if we could do something like maybe a some sort of something that clipped on. Like, could mm-hmm. could you do something maybe with, like, a tennis ball?
0: Well, what I was thinking of is, is like, that high visibility color or something that tags onto it and uh, says the number of, of divers down under this flag.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, because if, if, most of these flags we're using have some sort of pole. So yeah. if we had something that clipped onto the pole and was very visible, and you could look at it and you could say, oh, there's two or there's three, because you could see, like, the three you know, orange balls yeah. on the flagpole. Uh, but but I, I like that idea.
0: Uh, and this parlays into the next item. Now, in July, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not this month, but July of this month, July 20th, matter of fact, 2015, they had two divers die in the St. Lawrence River during the weekend. alright First one, 50-year, five-year-old diver was pulled unconscious from the water near Sparrow Island and the thousand islands west of Brockville. Um, and, and later that day in Cornwall, 43-year-old John Earl, a popular resident, was diving St. Lawrence River off Gideon Park when he called for help. When he was pulled from the water unconscious, or he was pulled from the water unconscious, but dead by the time taken to a hospital. Uh, the comment there was, not clear where the deaths occurred because of equipment malfunctions or because the diver had some sort of medical episode. Key items again, river, current, one considerably older than the other one. What were the problems? The one, they saw him struggling on the surface. The other one also said he called for help, meant they were on the surface when they, they drowned, basically.
1: Well, I th- I think that's common. I, I've but
0: you wonder why though. It, we're all taught: you got a problem, get to the surface, dump your weight, inflate your BC. Your head should be out of the water. Why did you drown?
1: I'm not sure, but Even that's, tr- that's what, that what seems to say? be common. When we've over the years of doing the show, and we don't, f- I don't frequently put a lot of the the tra- the tragic events in, unless there's something that directly can be learned. Which when between the time when it's news and all the details come out, it's so far apart. That's why Dan's such a good resource. But it, it's not always clear, but it, it seems like people are on, on the surface probably 70%, 80% of the time. You hear about people pulling somebody out or somebody's in distress. Yeah. Uh, and and again,
0: you, you don't know if it was a medical aspect, in right. which case, you know, it, it makes, I don't know if it makes you feel any better, but you know he didn't do something stupid underwater. Something happened, he's on the surface, he did everything right, but he still died.
1: Yeah. Well, and in, in he could have died in the parking lot. If, he, if you have a heart attack, it's going to happen when something triggers it and diving could be what triggered it. Yeah. But it would have, without diving, it would eventually happen. It's just the difference is how close you are and do you drown? I mean, if you have a heart attack underwater and you can drown there because you spit out your regulator or what, what whatever.
0: Right. But I've I've tagged these. I want to go back and see if I can find some follow up to find out was it equipment or was it medical? Because to me, that's important. I keep thinking of river. I keep thinking of higher stress levels. I I think of if you've got a lot of heavy boat action, like in St. Clair, even on the surface, sometimes that could be a really a bit dicey. But if I inflate my BC and it's functional and or I get rid of my weights, and even if I have a leak, my valve is leaking, I can manually inflate it. I really shouldn't drown, and I know that if I stay in the current, it's going to eventually carry me downstream, and I can make myself go to the side. I don't swim 90. I go with it and use the current to take me to the side. So I'm I'm really curious to find out, you know, what's found on this
1: one. And then the other part that I would like to know, especially after they've had time to look at it, is come up with some way of quantifying the experience of that diver so that you can relate. Was this a, is this a diver in his first year? Is it a diver who's been doing it 10 years? How often does he dive? When was his last dive? Is this a case like we see it a lot with uh, lobster diving is people dive once a year to go get their lobster and they're just not keeping up on their skills. So that's, that's part of this that I think can come into it, uh, to the, the reporters who report on it. They ask a family member, and he goes, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's an experienced diver. Well, he, he dove seven times in nine years.
0: Well, we talked about that last week, too. Remember the cameraman? Yeah. How many dives did he have? Oh, and then you find out, well, he was a surfer diver. Yeah. And it's like, well, I didn't go deep, and, yeah. and you know, 30 feet was deep for him.
1: Yeah. He, 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 would, he, was a, he was a snorkeler with a scuba tank on because he, could, he didn't have to worry about holding his breath.
0: Yeah, for 20 years. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that, that, and you're diving in 200 foot of water. Ain't the same thing.
1: Right. Well, and then, not to criticize somebody who had a problem, but- if you're going, if you're a regular diver, you know not to go 200 feet.
0: Yeah, I'd be a little freaky to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, then you got this next one.
0: I, I thought this was interesting because for another reason. I'll go through it. Uh, the report here was they found a man, uh, how man mummified in diving to after 13 years, saved life a friend who had to leave him behind in, in 220 foot of water in Lake Michigan. Now, that was what got me looking at the article. And it talked about uh, the body of a diver missing for more than a decade been found in the cold waters of Lake Michigan, where he drowned after he saved his friend's life, Dirk, who lived in Iowa. Disappeared in September 1999 while exploring a popular and extremely dangerous shipwreck, the legendary Lakeland, 225 foot below the surface with his trusted diving partner. Anyway, it said uh, the 52-year-old man's remains were found in Whitefish Bay on Saturday, the Door County Sheriff Department confined, uh, confirmed, still in his dive suit and with air tanks connected to him. Uh, authorities say his body was recovered near the wreck, which sits about seven miles east of Surgeon Bay Canal and more than 200 feet of water. Now, the interesting part about this is, what ship were we talking about last week and had some really nice pictures? Was it this one? Is <laughs> was that one. Yes. Yeah. It's considered a technical dive. And the pictures we looked at last week, when I looked at this article, were quite similar to those. And the people down there, dead depth, were and rebreathers. Right. I read more on this. They had actually recovered his body. A fisherman snagged it, brought it up three or four years after that. On the surface, oh, there's a body. It broke free, went back down. They looked for it, couldn't find it. It was found a second time, lost on the recovery. And through the years, at least this time they finally found him yes. and brought him up and you know well, it seems
1: like we've covered one or two of those articles where he was he was found yeah. Uh, yeah, and you think of how many people have been on the wreck not looking for the body, just taking photos yeah and and in the, yeah. the meantime, I mean, it almost makes you wonder if you've got a camera is go back and look and see if you actually had him in the picture was he did Didn't he photo know, bomb
0: right, and this is what was found is found by guys diving the wreck. Now, that's what, and we've been there already. We prefer not to find them. Yes. But the good part is one of the mysteries and one of the missing guys, he's found, taken home, and there's an endpoint. Yeah. And that leads into, uh, I mean, we're talking, well, accidents. Now we're talking something to look at. It's called Emergency Accident Diver's Guide from Belize. And I thought this was interesting because we've been harping about diving outside the country and especially... Quite a few in, in the Asian areas where we've seen a good number of, of divers dying, and for no real reason except it looks like they had poor training, poor guidance. It, I, I like this one. There's a, um, a link to it. Uh, we'll put that on so you can at least read it, and it's worth it's worth a read. It says dive emergency. And it says all divers worldwide should be aware of the causes, signs, and symptoms of potential diving emergencies. and Be prepared. Ensuring your dive buddies are properly trained in emergencies is just as important. The victim may not always be someone else. It could be you, and that's what I always look at. It's nice to know that, but you want your buddy to know it because if you're the guy who's hurt, you want him to know what the hell he's doing. So this is a good article to read. I'm not going to go belabor it. It's worth an eyeball. And again, good. tells you stuff you should already know, but it's a good reminder.
1: Yep, and we'll have these and the others in the show notes, which you can find at www.scubaobsessed.com. We also have a little bit on lighter side. The American Academy of Underwater Science Sciences Sciences has announced the Diver Lifetime Achievement Award, and oh my goodness, I I'm sounding like an old man now, but. Can they put it in a smaller font?
0: <laughs> well, you know, scientific divers are quite an interesting uh, lot. You know, I mean, you've got your rescue divers, you've got your normal divers, you got your sport divers, you got the diehard divers. Scientific divers are quite interesting because depending on generally the university or group that you're diving with, their requirements for scientific diving can quite oftentimes be a lot different than you're used to. Right. And uh, it. it it's a nice thing to have. It, I mean, I, I, if I could get the training around here without having to go 200 miles and, and dive in their college for a while, I would probably like to go to their courses myself. Is there, is, does Andrews have one? No, they do not. The closest one for scientific diver for us, I believe, is Purdue. Uh, and they had a really nice program I was looking at to uh, going into because I had that part because they're the only other ones that have an archaeological mm-hmm. degree. mm and I would love to have gone to their classes. None of it was available online. And then I could just spend the, the summer taking the, the practical courses in the lake. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, but,
1: and, yeah. And, and we've probably said this a few times before, but I would love to get some like put, put together and we maybe get three or four of us into it. Well, but-
0: they're, they're, they're long. It's, it's a college course because uh, the two I was looking at also is there's one specifically that if you're going to work in a preserve like ours – it's how to manage and preserve it, and how to write grants. It would be a fabulous course to go to. Right. Uh, but again, it's not a weekend course. It's this is a college course. You're you're going to talk. You're going to be spending a year. Yeah. And again, you know, from here to Purdue is a long drive every day.
1: Yes, I would not want to do it every day. It would be you'd want to do it as a maybe twice a week type yeah. class. I couldn't do it as a daily. Certainly.
0: Yeah, but uh, you look at this this diver here. The 2015 Scientific Diver life, Lifetime Achievement Award. The, this is their, I mean, this is the guy who earned here, has got this one here, is a, is Charles Berkland. He earned his PhD from the University of Washington Washington by determining how sea pen populations were able to resist despite intense combined predation. And uh say pressure from seven different species of predators. It goes on. My point is intense, lots of work, but again, this is his life.
1: Yeah. Well, he's in,
0: a sport recreational diver. He's a professional scientific diver.
1: Yeah, and he's, you look at some of the stuff that he's done over the years, he's got some fairly uh, deep dives, uh, quite a bit of time underwater. It looks like he started in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, he spent weeks on Hydro Lab and published results. He has his postdoctorate from the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. He did well, an experimental. Underwater. Go ahead.
0: University of Guam Marine Laboratory worked for them. He did field work in the American Samoas. Very interesting individual. He's written four books, 70 pages in scientific journals. Uh, Looked like they could not have picked a better person for the Diver Lifetime Achievement Award for 2015. So accolades and congratulations to him.
1: And we have the U.S. Navy has officially issued rules for divers on sunken military vessels
0: including airplanes
1: so they're including an airplane as a military vessel
0: that's absolutely correct
1: this was in the california diver is that a magazine it's a website com, but i think they publish a magazine so the department of navy don has issued its final rules on the disposition of sunken military crafts including an updated procedure required for research and other activities on these sunken vessels importantly according to the letter that was received by DEMA. Activities such as fishing, snorkeling, and diving, which are not intended to disturb, remove, or injure any portion of sunken military craft are still allowed without the need for a permit. The revised regulations permit investigation of sunken military craft under jurisdiction, Department of Navy, were published in the Federal Register August 31st, 2015, and new regulations won't officially go into effect until March 1st, 2016. DEMA has been in communication With the DON for well over a year on the issue, in April of 2014, on behalf of the industry, DEMA reached out to DON to determine the extent which the rules proposed in January of 2014, which was – you can click to the link if you want to get the the document number – uh, would impact routine recreational scuba diving activities in or about second vessels or wrecks. In his response, Dr. J.B. Thomas, assistant director for collection management with the D.O.N., indicated the Department of Navy, through its regulations, does not intend to restrict access to those D.O.N. craft purposely sunk to establish artificial reefs or those other sunken former military vessels of which the United States has previously divested. The final rule explicitly clarified this matter with the publication of the new rules in the Federal Register Deem is pleased that the final rules to apply to recreational diving do not prohibit diving on military sites or vessels when there is no intent to disturb these sites. The final rule makes it clear that these regulations are designed to preserve these sites while allowing divers to visit them. Said Tom Ingram, Dema's executive director, by preserving these wrecks in situ, situ, Sti- s-i-t-u. I want to say situ, <laughs> but there's not. There's they don't have enough letters there. All divers will have the opportunity to visit and enjoy them. Of particular interest to the recreational diving industry is a clear statement within the rules, which reads, non-intrusive activities, including diving on or remotely documenting sites, do not require a permit or authorization from Naval History or Heritage Command. Though this rule does not preclude the obligation to obtain permits or authorizations otherwise required by law, the regulations stipulate an application process for disturbance, removal, or injury of sunken military craft under the restriction of the Department of Navy. Further, the new rules indicate that the rule also incorporates provision for the special use permit to be issued in the case of certain activities directed at sunken military crafts that would result in a rec site's disturbance, removal, injury, but otherwise meant to be minimally intrusive. These standards must be met for special use permits which, uh, permits which are easily obtainable as they are reporting requirements through data collected shall be shared with the NHHC. Dema encourages all members of diving history to familiarize themselves with the new rules of their in, in their entirety, and share the information with customers and diving communities. So that, I, I like the way this is worded. It makes you wonder if Dema had not gotten involved, how bad could this have been?
0: Well, if you read, well, I I was uh, reading some of this last year, and some of the wording has been changed because of the input from commercial divers, recreational divers, and the dive industry. Uh, one specific item that applies to us here in the Great Lakes is the German U-boat, UC-97. still belongs to the military, and any of the aircraft out there still belong to the military. And if you do bring one up, the two major items you have to have is a, a demonstrated plan for being able to recover it without doing, uh, you know obviously, damage to a, to an aircraft like some of those have been, It's going to be hard to bring them up. you still got to be able to bring them up and handle them correctly. The second one, before you bring it up, you've got to have somebody who's going to take it from you and have restoration plan and have the money to do it. Otherwise, they're going to sit on the bottom.
1: Yeah, well, they don't want you to bring it up, sit in a hangar somewhere, and then disintegrates because you you, you thought you'd bring it up and the money would show up and it didn't.
0: Right, because it will disintegrate quicker on the surface. And obviously, it still will below, but it'll take longer.
1: Well, because what concerned me is, is originally when this came to light, it appeared to be a way of just adding a bureaucracy to something and nobody would get the paperwork, but then it would be used to prosecute you. So the DNR or some other agency would see you on a wreck. You'd go over there. They'd want to see your permit or your papers, which you wouldn't have, and now you've got a fine and a court date. Yeah. And it appears that they haven't done that. Plus, they it, it seems that one of the other risks was you could inadvertently come across the wreck because if your goal is to go and do fishing, you may not even know there's a wreck there or it may, the wreck may not have been discovered yet. Mm-hmm. So just because you pass near a wreck fishing does not mean that you should have had to get a permit and now you are in violation of some law. So this seems good. Uh, you know, it, you're up, it's up to yourself to go and read the rules and understand what they mean. Cause I'm going to bet that there could be conditions that can happen that you may fall foul of some of these regulations. So the the more educated you are and we'll certainly look into them just to make sure that we're aware of them. Uh, but examples could be if you're, if you're a commercial operation, if you're bringing boats and divers down at what point, you know, is it four divers is an impact in the wreck or is it 4,000 divers, which you would, which would require some sort of permitting
0: process. Yeah. Uh,
1: now, is it clear whether the condition of the wreck plays into it at all, or do they do not that specific? Because I'm thinking.
0: It was not that specific there, but there's so many of them out there you're not going to be diving on. And again, and if it's got personnel on it, generally they're concerned with like submarines or something that may have bodies on it. Right. That's considered a uh, war grave. Yeah, Wargrave, you don't want to desecrate. But again, nothing says you can't go down and take pictures.
1: Right. Yeah. So this is good. And and I'm sure that over time it's nice to get some clarification. Uh, but we'll, we'll look into it. But this looks positive at first glance. So sometimes we can get stuff done without turning it into a mess. And if Dan had a hand to play, uh, Dan, I said Dan, uh, Dima, if they had a hand to play in it, then good for them. And then reported in the Guardian is we have an instance. Maybe this should have been in our environmental section. Uh, We have a problem of ghost gear, which we've talked about for quite a while. And for those who aren't familiar, ghost gear, it's not paranormal scuba gear. It's actually nets and other discarded fishing objects, which are continuing to catch fish. They just float around the ocean, and they continue to catch even after their initial purpose or objective is no longer being met. And they... You know, they, they cite examples of off California, the rescue of an 80-foot blue whale that was entangled in a 200-foot fishing net. Uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service reported that on average 11 entangled large whales per year from 2000 to 2012 along the U.S. West Coast. Around the world, turtles, seabirds, fish are also injured and killed in the same way. Between 2002 and 2010, 870 nets recovered from Washington state alone contained more than 30 2,000 marine animals. So this is ghost gear. They say that ghost gear makes up 10% of all marine litter. Uh, The Sea Dock Society estimated that just one abandoned net can kill $20,000 or 13,000 pounds worth of dungeness crabs over 10 years. That's from one net. The Virginia Institute of Marine Science estimated abandoned lost crab pots in Chesapeake Bay capture one and a quarter million blue crabs annually. So that is... One-third of percent of the U.S. could have a crab dinner for what's being captured. Now, they they, uh, they don't go to waste. Bacteria gets to munch on them, but that's not a way of maintaining an, uh, a good fishery. There is an, uh, a group, the Global Ghost Gear Initiative. The fishing industry issues a bycatch and a plastic pollution are regularly reported, but the ghost gear is less known. The initiative launched in London. Aims at finding solutions, hoping to change us. Founded by the NGO World Animal Protection, the Ghost Gear Initiative (Global Ghost Gear Initiative, GGGI) will bring together industry, governments, academics, and charities. Participants from the UK include the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, Marine Stewardess, Stewardship Council, Sandsburg's Young Seafood, and the charity Surfers Against Sewage. The initiative will focus on evidence building on the ground solutions and reviewing policies over the next few days. The steering group is made up of different sectors will be elected to run it. And it plans to meet annually review progress in the next steps. So some of the solutions have been proposed. One is uh, companies that are working to recycle nets. Cause what they're doing is they're saying that these fishermen, the easiest thing to do with the net is just throw it back in the water when you're done. Uh, cause some of the, uh, inv- uh, not environments, some of the economies don't have uh, a mechanism for dealing with it and they just want to just pitch it. So networks is a, is an organization that has an interface and, and the zoological society of London, aqua uh, fill. What they do is they turn discarded fishing nets into carpet tiles and they're being shown as an example of creating a circular economy where you're taking what's a waste product and turning it into something beneficial. The U.S. fishery, the U.S. Fishing for Energy Partnership has collected 2.8 million pounds of fishing gear from bins placed in 42 communities across the U.S. since 2008 and turned this into enough electricity to power 182 homes for a year. And then there's a skateboard manufacturer or retailer, uh, Br- uh, Burio, has set up a collection program with the support of the Chilean government. They said fishermen are the first to recognize ghost gears being a problem, but they have limited options. The additional infrastructure and costs required to discard some nets, sound matters, made this material a burden, especially for artisanal fishermen. And so, what they're doing is they're taking, uh, for every kilogram of net returned, they allocate funds to an NGO that transfer that transforms old nets into skateboards
0: and we've seen a good number of articles over the last couple of years on abandoned gear of any type both out uh, floating out there in the ocean plus washing up on shores nothing yeah. new and it shows you how much we're still polluting the the waterways yeah
1: and this this doesn't slow down and those nets depending on where they go there's hundreds or you know i would say tens if not hundreds of years that that net will keep fishing and we see this in the in the rivers too I bet that tonight with everybody who went in the water, all but maybe one came across some sort of fishing line as they were in the water. It's unbelievable how much monofilament line and fishing hooks and lead that is that is in the water. Because what did we do that one time, Mac, where we looked at a, a square foot area? Just take any spot of the bottom of the river and looked at a square foot area and you could pick out eight or ten lead sinkers.
0: Oh, yeah. That, uh, that was an interesting survey I was trying to make to find out what they were talking about, that they wanted to uh, require fishermen not to use lead sinkers anymore. And Mm -hmm. I thought, how can that be an issue? So I went out and started doing some informal surveys of some fishing areas, and I was extremely surprised at how much lead I found. I've still got a barrel out there of over 60 pounds just in yeah. different sinkers. But the item is the fish are not going to be eating those, no. and they're solid. They're not actually polluting anything because they're not going anywhere.
1: No, they're, they're, that lead sinkers aren't in a a form that— will cause lead pollution so it's not going to be uh absorbed by the the marine environment and cause any problems but from a non-native material that is sitting in the body of water uh, it's just an example of how much waste that's in there and this is from people who are fishing uh yeah i don't know in the case of uh yeah and we're not advocating uh banning lead on weights we're just saying that this is an example of how much is being done Uh, but we need to get it out uh Come up with ways of not putting it in, and then the stuff that's in there getting away. I uh, and we we need to have somebody from Washington State come on because they've got a fairly aggressive net recovery program where they're bringing it up.
0: Well, like I'm not as much concerned about the solid lid that's out there because it's going to the bottom. Uh, and again, I don't think it's going to be in the ingestion pathways.
1: No, it's
0: it uh, the, the micro stuff and the micro beads. I'm still more concerned with, but uh, well, in and... evolution,
1: yeah. Yeah, true. We can take care of ourselves one way or the other. On the plastics, I still want to see somebody do some research on that. I want to see an impartial, straightforward study and see how much is out there and how it's metabolized. And I'm, and I'm not for putting pollution in the water any way you look at it, whether it causes problems or not. But it'd be nice to have a clear understanding of how bad it is. Uh, we have a, an, a just kind of a in, little interesting bit on fish. Uh, scientists have come across a blind cave fish. That has evolved a shrunken brain, and they've now determined that the small brain the, the evolutionary uh, just because they required less energy to live, and they think that's how they were able to survive in these fairly closed systems. So deep underground, they have these these rivers or no light skinning to them, and uh, the fish were surviving on little more than bat droppings to eat. So they're also saying that other parts of their senses, including smell and taste, grew. And became more numerous. It's also they came up with the bills that checked uh, to detect changes in mechanical pressure, which made them more sensitive to water movement. So what they ended up discovering is that brains of the surface-dwelling fish were 30% li- larger than the blind cave fish.
0: I think I'd rather have my vision and uh use more energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I agree. And then so from blind fish to deep fish, scientists are wondering if they may have come across the uh, deepest fish. Uh, Alan, How
0: deep is the deepest fish?
1: Oh, Alan Jamieson, a senior lecturer for the University of Aberdeen, has been involved in uh, some of these research efforts. They, what they do is they're using baited cameras and leaders to examine some of the ocean's 38 distinct habits that have uh, that are below 6,000 meters in depth. He compares these with deep-sea cannons Canyons, oh my goodness. Canyons to inverted mountains, isolated zones with unique organisms have developed far from genetic influence of incoming individuals. Jameson and other researchers want to see how distinct each habitat is, but given the remoteness, depth and size of the sites, it's not so easy to look around and catalog different species. In Portugal last week, Jameson provided a guided tour of the trenches. In the trenches, he was finding fishes, eels, shrimp, and other alien species where they come in for a free buffet. Lights go up and the cameras catch the scene. With time, the next level of predators come in, drawn by the high density of prey. And if you're lucky, mul- multiple trophic levels can show up in the same frame. So we bait them, we draw them in, and then the predators come in and enjoy the feast.
0: <laughs> Typical. Yeah. And we're usually the predators. Yeah.
1: So last year, the team released a highlight reel of trench biology. There was a balletic shrimp, a cartoonish proportion eel, the deepest fish yet observed, a snailfish cruising by eight thousand one hundred and forty-five meters in depth. The conspicuous lack, conspicuous. I, th- I think I'd just better stop talking. The lack of bony fish below the eight thousand meter mark is something the team has been investigating. They said that random number would be disproven with more observations. Or is this a meaningful boundary? So what they're wondering is if maybe fish with vertebrae can't exist below that depth. The more we look at, it, the more it looks like there's something to it. So what they're saying is that the deeper parts of the ocean have uh, invertebrates. You know, your sea cucumbers and uh, some of your crustaceans that are on the vents. But you're not getting the fish, the vertebrate fish. But that fish kind of looks eerie, doesn't he? Yeah. He's, yeah, that is just staring, waiting for for you to feed them. So what they're doing is they're showing that uh, fish at 4,800 meters. So they're saying that may be the deepest. I bet that's the only time that fish ever cast a shadow is in that photo. And then researchers are analyzing cod bones to determine something about a shipwreck.
0: I'm not sure how you're really going to determine, or do you really care about the fish trade in Tudor, England, that many years ago?
1: Well, there's probably four people in the world who that's what their their Ph.D. was on and their topic of study. So they probably do, but what they what they're doing is uh, they taking a new stable isotope, an ancient DNA analysis of bones stored, bones of stored cod and provisions recovered from wrecks of warships, and the one in particular talking about the Mary Rose, and the Mary Rose sank off the coast of southern England in 1545, and what they're saying is that the fish in these ship stores were from surprisingly different waters they said they came from as far away as the northern sea and the fishing grounds of iceland despite england having a well-developed local fishery by that time in the 16th century so they weren't expecting that much trade uh, because you would think if you get if you can catch a fish local wouldn't you do it and it probably comes up with anything else if you have somebody from farther away who's bringing it in you're going to have this economy where you have to drive prices, you're driving prices down. So they're taking bids. That's the best price they get for the the government, and that's what they're using in their stores. So just another example, I like to say how we we tend to underestimate the capabilities of our ancestors. We somehow think that they were idiots and that their economies weren't nearly as developed as what they are. They didn't have TVs to rot their brain.
0: And a lot of other items.
1: Yes. Of course, they could get legal heroin.
0: And other wonderful recreational drugs.
1: <laughs> so then they go on and they talk about in the article some history behind the Mary Rose, which I think didn't we co- cover that one in a few articles, uh, a few podcasts ago? Because that was uh, Henry the Eighth's ship that sank when the French were coming in.
0: Yeah, but I like your other article that's closer to the home and on trinkets. That I'd like to find like
1: another gun from the CSS Georgia.
0: Absolutely, I did see the pictures of that now
1: to kind of tie this back in with our earlier article confederate ships oh come on oh i think i'm required at least once an episode to complain about cut and paste not working on these computers another gun from the css georgia has been brought to surface in savannah it's a third dahlgren gun it is known as Confederate Ironclad, which was part of the Georgia City defense. It had at least ten guns at some point, but no one knew exactly how many were on board when the vessel was scuttled in December 1864. Two guns were found years ago and sit outside Old Fort Jackson nearby. A U.S. gun diving, a U.S. gun diving team, is is, is, is there such a thing as a gun diving team? A U.S. Navy diving team this summer salvaged four guns, including one nine-inch Dahlgren, two Brooke rifles, and a smaller gun. Now there's a seventh gun. The U.S. Army, Army Corps of Engineer spokesman Russell Wick said that the massive Dahlgren bought up Tuesday was a bit of a surprise because it apparently evaded earlier archaeological and sonar surveys because it was deeper in the muck. It was scooped up by a larger by a large grapple that went into use this week. That is a nice one.
0: Wow! All of them are nice. Yes. Well, let's I'd, see, clean them up and see. You know, see I, what they do with them.
1: I think. I think that would be fun to have. And I don't think it would be terribly expensive to restore that, would it be? Because you just have to have a tank. You have a chemical bath, put a little electrolysis in it, and wait for five years. But that is beautiful. I'd want to fire it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My neighbors would love me. i put that in my front yard, too. So they used a grapple. No airbags. They just went down and brute forced it out. Mm-hmm. Now, Confederate ships have to follow that that Navy law, too. So I wonder, wonder if they had their papers.
0: Of course they did, right? Government can do no wrong. Yeah. And then we have a Great Lakes steamboat
1: that is docked in Buffalo. The Great Lakes steamboat that operated as a passenger ferry for decades is now temporarily berthed in Buffalo while en route to New York City. Once it gets to New York City, they have restoration is planned. The USS Columbia li- arrived last week in western New York, it will remain docked in at the uh, Silo City on Buffalo's Lake Erie waterfront for the next year. While in Buffalo, the 113-year-old vessel will host a celebration, dockside tours, education programs, and other functions. It was launched in the early 20th century. The Columbia ferried passengers from downtown Detroit to an amusement park across the border in Canada. The plans call for towing it to New York City, where the vessel will undergo restoration. Columbia is a sister ship to the, US, uh, to the SS Canadian, Canaday? Canadian, Canadiana? Has an odd name which took passengers from Buffalo to amusement Park in Ontario, Canada. The Canaanadia, if that's what it's called, was scrapped in 2004. So is this part of the bailout of Detroit? They took the old uh, boat and they're going to restore it?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Did you see the pictorial of it?
1: I haven't seen it. I just saw the single photo, mm-hmm. which I can't believe they have people going to get on it.
0: What? Uh, I don't know where I just saw this, but I saw more pictures of this boat last week. Oh, okay. So what did we cover last week that had this in it. Did it have this in it? I, I am swearing that was the same boat.
1: <laughs> it may have. Let me see. So let's do, I bet the time for a Google search for the SS Columbia. If we do image? So this is the most exciting part of a podcast is the, the search part. And where you hear us comment on photos. That's why we need to do a video version. Let's see. Image search. And uh, it's such a common name, it's hard. But uh, there are some photos that we can see it in its heyday. It's a beautiful ship. It's a, uh, what do you call that, triple decker, four decks, three decks? So it was designed primarily as as a people ferry. Yeah. And high volume. So you've got a short amount of time a lot of people want to get on and same thing that you go down to Disney and they've got the ferries if you do the water entrance uh this is a a big version they a lot of these islands were late development in commercial periods and people like to get away so what better to get away from a city full of people than to go to an island and a resort so very attractive looking and maybe it's not as bad shape as it looks cuz it's they got <laughs> it looks like they tarped it and it wasn't originally sided it was open so it was like a steel steel decked vessel. Oh, there's some, there's one that shows people on it. It's one of those. It looks like it, it's, it's a typical ferry in that you, I'm betting, well, they've only got the the pilot house is forward. So I think it does turn around, doesn't it? Cause it has that shape like it's even. Cause sometimes you see on these ferries where they have dual pilot house or the pilot house will be in the middle and they just, you know, flip direction. You know, you, they don't even turn around. They just, they got uh, props on both sides of the boat and just they, they, determine which one they're going to drive
0: hmm. The huh. a big boat though and that'd be a hell of a lot of uh, rust-oleum needed on that one
1: well they're going to restore it but i bet somebody's got a plan for that um i'm 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 seeing drinking boat <laughs> a, b- a bunch of people getting on the boat and drink until they're sick
0: okay i remember where i saw this this was the boat that was in in uh, detroit yeah we talked about that a different picture
1: okay now was That's- that last week
0: I keep thinking it was.
1: I don't. My my memory is not good enough to know anymore.
0: I keep by more by accent than design, though.
1: Well, it could have been because that's it, it, where it came from. It's just interesting that it's going from you know the because it, its history is Detroit and Canada going back and forth to an amusement park, yeah. and now they're going to take it to New York. It, it's like is this the first time in a hundred and some years it's ever been that way? Yeah. So why, why is it so interesting to people in New York that they're going to restore it? Somebody's got a plan for this., oh. and and I'm for them. I mean, it's fine. it's property. you can do what you want. Right. And so I said, "What a great houseboat." Uh, but i'm I'm betting that somebody's doing something. Oh, Detroit News, somebody in the chat room, Surfer George has given us an article from the Detroit News on it. Did you see this one, Mac? Let me. I'll paste it to you in Skype if I. Just give it to me. a little bit. Here you go. So you can follow along. Okay. Uh, oh, Bablo. Yeah, Bablo Island. I've never been there, but I can remember growing up. Uh, we used to get. Oh, I can't remember the network. It was Channel Fifty out of Detroit. Uh, in the early days of cable, uh, they used to play all the cartoons and the Godzilla movies and those sort of programs. But the. Uh, I thought I didn't realize Boblo Island was Canadian. I thought that was in the U.S. side.
0: No, I thought it. It is in Canada. That whole little island in the middle—that's where they were finding the cannon a couple of months ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they said it was launched in early 20th century. The Columbia ferried passengers from downtown Detroit to the amusement park across the border in Canada. The plans call for towing it to New York City, according to this article in Detroit, and this was in September 9th. Oh, so it's this is a recent article as well, huh? Oh, this one has some more pictures. Let's see. So it's got the boat. Oh, it's got the Island Amusement Park. Yeah, because the island went up for sale not too long ago. I wonder if this is one of the things that got sold off. You wonder why somebody like Cedar Point kind of taken that on and done something with it. Probably too close for competition. (laughs) Interesting. So I wonder why I didn't realize. I guess we just didn't make a big deal back then before we had Homeland Security. Uh, Because you probably didn't have to show a passport or anything or prove who you are. It was probably just an independent area. I'll do some research on that.
0: What do you have next? Kayakers?
1: Uh, Kayakers. Yeah, this is a video of the week. And if you're a kayaker, I want to know how you think about this. We'll give this in the chat room as well. Uh, Kayakers were a little startled. Uh, I think they were out there for it, so I can't say how startled they were. But they're in the water observing whales, you know, doing some whale spotting and sighting. And a humpback breached and sunk a kayak. So if you're kayaking, I think I think they call that a brown pants moment or a brown suit moment when that happens.
0: Uh, that's when you're glad you have a wetsuit.
1: <laughs> yes. I don't know. I I I think I'd, I I need something a little less material if I'm going to brownify it. But uh, so follow the link again. We'll have it in the show notes so you can see. But the humpback whale breaches on top of a kayak. And I didn't, I didn't get a chance to watch this one, Mac. What goes on with this diver fends off the shark with a spear gun?
0: Well, one, they're not divers. Well, let me rephrase that. They're um, surface skimmers. Okay. You know, they're free divers. And that's a, a um, not your normal shark. That's one of those that has the eyes on both sides of the head that stick out a little ways. It's a hammerhead. Ah. And he got pretty freaking aggressive. Yeah, they're known to be a little bit ornery. And since the guys are on the surface, there's two of them going, like, keeping each other's back covered. You can hear their uh, concerned voices in whatever GoPro the guy must have had. Because <laughs> when they got that <laughs> boat, they were more than happy to get the hell on that boat and out of them waters. And you see, know, that, it's adrenaline laughter when you know you're not going to die. That's what they were doing. So it was worth an eyeball. Yeah. Uh, and that's,
1: you've got to respect nature. If you don't, it's going to take care of itself And While we have vilified sharks and they're being slaughtered by the millions, it doesn't mean that they're not, that they're all friendly. You know, they're not all man killers, but they're, they'll take a chunk out of you. If you're, if you look like food or could be food, you may be food.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, how's this for some potentially cool scuba gear? We have a a few items. I wonder if this is the run up to DEMA that we're starting to see.
0: Oh, could be.
1: People talk about because it's, this is what I was hoping when I started the podcast originally is that there'd be more gear. There's not a lot of gear that comes out. Uh, and what this is, what I'm referring to, the first one is a iDive incorporated has developed housings that protect tablets and computers underwater. Mm-hmm. So some of these tablets they've got, they've uh, taken to a depth of 330 feet. And they're saying when you go down to 330 feet, the water pressure is 160 pounds per square inch. We didn't know the limit, said Jim Pinea president of Innova Designs of San Diego. Theoretically, we could pressure balance the inside with the outside for use at any depth, which that's why I've kind of wondered sometimes why we, we don't do a little bit more. But it sounds like this, they were just doing surface. Uh, they're saying what's unique about the housing is it allows the user to swap out both the camera lens and the pressurization system. Does that mean seals when they say pressurization system?
0: Sounds like it.
1: Or maybe they are using pressure to help compensate. They said in the past, researchers had to use special pencil, special paper and a pencil during dives to record their counts, then feed each of those entries into computer once they were back on land. They said it added an extra step to the researchers at hand, but also most commonplace for mistakes to occur. And this is according to uh, iDive's website after coming up with the concept. Initially in 2012, Diving Equipment and Marketing Association trade show in Vegas, mm-hmm. yep, DEMA, uh, the mechanical engineer took about 14 months to design, tool and mold the parts. Another six months to demonstrate the feasibility. SolidWorks software was used during the development, which for those who don't know, SolidWorks is uh, a software that a lot of 3D printing people are starting to use. Uh, Do they say who makes that? I think that might be, yeah, I'll do a search for it in a minute, who makes SolidWorks. So there, well, there's a number of waterproof housings for cameras and smartphones. Those housings don't allow the user to interact with the apps and use the tablets for anything more than a simple recording device. To make the tablet actually work underwater, they they encapsulate the tablet, then pressurize the housing with either carbon dioxide canisters, or air from another device such as a scuba tank. The housing incorporates that pressure system. So that's kind of so you're, you're kind of like what your regulator is doing. So you can breathe at those depths is what they're doing with the housing. They're pressurizing it so that it doesn't crush. We need more pressure inside the housing than outside. The lower housing is clear polycarbonate. The touchscreen touch membrane is a what was that polyether poly polyurethane. So what it sounds like is that this is not a rigid case. It's a, it's a soft case that you can actually use a touchscreen side on. They said they could not get the robustness with the polyester PU. Early experiments of touchscreen membrane material pointed out stiff PC or acrylic. The texts were conducted on sheets with thickness between 0.3 and 0.8 millimeters. PC or acrylic easily transmitted the finger conductive patch out of the water but failed in an underwater trial. So that makes sense. By choosing a flexible material, we could retain the thickness of 0.3 to 0.5 millimeters that seemed more robust for everyday handling, with the basic idea that a thicker, flexible material it turned the plastic they turned to a plastic expert. So they're expecting the uh, the house, oh, the housing did come up in the market in August twenty fourteen and is available at a retail of seven ninety nine. They said about six hundred units are known to be in use. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I'd ha- you'd have to have a reason to have a tablet underwater to be willing to risk it.
0: Yeah, just in case. That a if, lot of money. Yeah,
1: but if it's a tool and if you're paying somebody, uh, and that's a data collection device, that's good. Now, this one I really liked. This is a Power Grip H2O selfie stick. So we've all seen those crazy selfie sticks that people are using to get shots, or even some who have done them for underwater. This one's a little shorter than a normal one, but it's not just a a selfie stick. It's more of a handle with a battery in it, and it's able to charge a GoPro while underwater. It's waterproof. Uh, It can charge a camera to depth to 30 meters or 99 feet. So that's pretty decent. If you're going to take it on your trip and you're going to do a long dive, I'd like to see it a little bit deeper, but this is good for a first attempt. It has a built-in 6,700 milliamp lithium battery. And they said that can, uh, it's enough to, tr- to s- for six fully charged GoPro batteries, 12 hours of use on a single charge. So you get 12 hours in a GoPro using this handle. Um, they've got the different uh, housings they can go out depending on how you're going to use it. Would you just stick with a deep one? Maybe it's a hassle.
0: I don't know. I know I've got a GoPro handle for mine. I really like it. And if it had a battery, that would have been even better.
1: Because you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and this looks, it looks nice.
0: Yeah, I'm going to like that.
1: I'm not a big one for selfies, but, uh, I kind of like the idea. So the, you know, let's see, is it, it was on Kickstarter. I don't know if it's still on there or not. So they had it on Kickstarter for $69 to start. And then when those ran out, there were 79. And when those ran out, it went to 99. So I'm going to guess this is probably about $129 unit. The campaign will run out October 10th. Let me see. Can we get to the Kickstarter page on this? Why are they, they're kind of being mean. They don't give them a link. Oh, bummer. <laughs> oh, yeah, here, here it is. Sources Kickstarter. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Let's see how they're doing on Kickstarter. So they've got 181 backers. Their goal is $50,000. they are at 23000 right now. There's 22 days to go. I think they could make it. Let's see. Do they have any more that the deal price? Yeah, they do. The $69. So if you want the $69 one, uh, there's 238 out of 300 still left. Mm. They're planning on retailing it at $99, which I think even at $99, that's a good price. Yeah. Waterproof door, dual USB ports, custom thumb screw, the battery. Oh, the live charge kit you have to buy separate. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's what they're doing. So they got the one that's just straight up. And then if you want the live charge kit, which allows you to live charge underwater and the Kickstarter, you can get that from... For ninety nine dollars. Or is that just a kit? Do you have to buy the kit separate? Well you have to take a look at it. You have to buy it separate. That kind of makes it expensive then.
0: Well, yep. Those are nice. I still like my GoPro, but it, it's the beginning. The newer ones, you know, the the blacks, the four levels. Yeah. You know, that you're talking five hundred bills. I mean it's a nice camera, you've and it's got the H D and all that stuff in there now. I understand one of them's got a four K. I don't know if the new black is the four K yet.
1: Uh there's there's two or three models that have the 4K because that's what I've been looking at. Because I really, I
0: I, I would like. To, I mean, I'd like that, but by the same token, man, I'd I'd like to spring get a, a really nice SLR surface. But I really have used it either underwater in the air. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's pros and cons. You can't beat it for underwater work. The one I've been doing, it's it's a lot cheaper than five. I I, I love it, but I sure like to have a nice camera for surface pictures. I like to take anymore
1: yeah uh yeah my wife bought a fairly decent camera. It's not an s l r but for what she wants to use, she wants to be it's 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 a little bit above a point and click you know it's got a mm-hmm. really i mean the zoom that you're getting in some of these cameras is amazing, and the light sensitivity so all these sensors that are coming out for cameras are making it into regular general market cameras, so everybody's benefiting by this technology advancing, but for video. And we've talked about doing video since the podcast started, but I really want to do four or five cameras, shots. And I think I'm probably going to go crazy when I do it. I'll, I'll probably go all in and spend way too much money. But, you know, there'll be a drone, there'll be a boom cam, there'll be fixed cams, mm-hmm. uh, just just to get everything that I want to be able to do. And then the other part is that once you get all the cameras, you got to have people to run them. So I'm trying to play around with ideas and concepts to where – you just record everything, and then you edit this massive quantity of the data back, almost like you're doing a live broadcast. So what you do is you shoot everything. You have wide-angle views, and that's one of the advantages of 4K is that there's really not a practical use for 4K now. Very few people have the TVs. There's very that- few devices that have it. It takes huge amounts of bandwidth, and you know it's, it's, it's kind of a gimmick. But a lot of your video editing people are like it because I can now crop the photo. So if I have a wide angle photo or if I say photo, if I have a wide angle video, I can now take a quarter of that screen and I can move that around and get the shot. or if I or if I'm really doing something shaky, the software can station uh, take that shakiness out by mm-hmm. just dynamically cropping and you have very smooth video. Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm at now is it's like I want to have good quality video, I want to have good color depth levels. And then you have to have a good concept. So I've got three or four concepts for video. So we may tr- start off with uh, our video show. We'll have to have to do some playing around. And then as another Kickstarter project, uh, last Sunday I got an advanced email from the Open ROV team. And for those who are fam- not familiar, the Open ROV team was about three years ago. They did an open source underwater ROV. Did a Kickstarter project. It went very successful and thousands of the kits have been produced. You can take the plans, which are open source, build everything yourself and have an underwater ROV, or you can buy a kit pre-assembled or all the parts, your choice. And they've just come out with a new ROV. This one is called the Open ROV Trident. Uh, They gave me the advanced look on Sunday. They said sometime Monday, it's going to go live to watch. I sent notices out to everybody. Jim said that he was going to try and get in the first group. It sounds like if you weren't there within the first five minutes of it, they, they you wouldn't get it. The, the goal was $50,000, and they're expecting this to be a $1,200 ROV. And in the first five minutes of the Kickstarter going live, they had met their goal. Five minutes. Right now they've got 583 backers, $390,000. On an original goal of fifty thousand forty-three days ago, and unlike many Kickstarters, they're doing no stretch goals, nothing fancy. It's just a way of you to buy it early. So the original one was five ninety-nine. So half price. They had hundred backers, gone. They then said, "Okay, we're going to stretch this out. We're still going to give you a deal: seven ninety-nine. Three hundred backers. Those are gone. And now it's nine forty-nine. They got seven hundred fifty of them." And as of the recording right now, there's 29 item in purchase. There's 721 to go. So I'm going to guess for a while you're going to be able to get those. But I wouldn't wait to the end if you're interested in getting one. Now, they, then they have some other packages and gimmicks and things you can do. But what I think is attractive, and I it seems like people would go for this, is find a buddy who wants one. You get a two-pack for 1600 So for 1600 you get two of them. So what's at $800 a piece? Mm -hmm. so not so that and that's the 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 deal that's already up so they they had 300 that went away they've had no takers on the 1600 for two so there's 50 so that's a way find somebody else who wants and you can get it now the one thing they're doing if you're watching drones which is in the three years since they've come out with the underwater rov drones have taken off and so they've learned things that there's happening in the drones and they're applying it to the rov and one of the things is a is a heads-up display so you pilot it as if you are the ROV yourself. So you can get a adventure pack, three hundred fifty dollars. What the adventure pack gets you, I think, that gets you. It comes with a fifty foot tether or a fifty meter tether, and that gets you. It's a thirty five meter tether, and then it gets you. A, that adventure pack gets you another hundred meters of tether, and then it gets you a. You get a wireless topside buoy, and the buoy is Wi Fi. So you've. If you imagine the ROV connected to the tether. And then you've got your wireless control, and your control is communicating to that buoy then down to the r o v let's see do they do they go into detail what the adventure pack is. Keep saying looking left uh, adventure pack, and it looks a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more molded. These kits are all assembled, i believe okay they've got some uh, light and it and it moves in two different ways: one is just a low speed vertical where it moves up and down, kind of like a traditional r o v if you watch Alvin or any of those. They, they pretty much stay horizontal, but this has meant that you can, in high speed mode, uh, it's got two rear thrusters and one mid thruster, and you're actually able to dive almost like a plane. So it ships with 25 foot tether. You can get, uh, it's depth capabilities is hundred meters, 300 feet. Perfect for us in the great lakes. Uh, just under three kilograms. Top speed is two meters a second. Runtime is three hours. So 400 millimeters or about 16 inches Uh, Long, 200 millimeters wide, 7.87 inches, and then uh, 80 millimeters higher, three and a half inches. So that's a very tight, compact, uh, comes with software.
0: I looked that up, uh, so whenever he came back saying there was no openings, when I looked, there still was. Okay. Because I thought very heavily on it myself. But I was looking at the the higher end, Mm -hmm. the 1K, because then you got like 5. Actually, it was more. It was uh, like 1,200.
1: Yeah, they've got – well, they, the thing you have to watch is they've got a couple kits, and one of them is for their older model, which is the one that they've had out for a few years.
0: Well, I was talking about the higher end. They were looking for people on. They hadn't had any takers on it.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, so the Adventure Set – okay, here's what it is. The Adventure Set, which if you add $300 to any of the pledge levels, even though it does come with a case regularly, the Adventure Set gets you a hard case – which they say is about a $100 add-on, uh, which it comes in a sturdy plastic uh, or it's a hard case with travel for travel and shipment. It gets you the 100-meter uh, tether, which they said would, would normally cost $250 on its own. It comes to begin with with 25 foot of tether. Now, does it clear, does the tether extend or does it replace?
0: It looked like it was freestanding with no reel. So snag is going to be an interesting part if you're doing it in close work. But if you were doing it drop down straight yeah. to like uh, Havana or something, mm-hmm. I think you'd be in good good shape.
1: Now, one thing they're saying is that with this design and with the software, they said it's conceivable to do mowing the lawn with this, which is something that's unique. Normally, your ROVs aren't stable enough. The software isn't good enough. But they're they're, they're saying that you should be able to mow the lawn and then stitch together and map.
0: I yeah. saw that, and I saw some of their stuff. It, it really would be interesting down the road. Yeah. Keep an eye on them.
1: Well, this may maybe this is something that uh, we should be pitching to the dive club.
0: Well, I'm sure Jim will bring it up. He has been interested in that part.
1: Yeah. did did he Did he actually get a chance to get one, or did he not make it?
0: I'm sorry. Say again.
1: He he originally said he wanted to buy one, but you know, did he get it one in?
0: No, he said he tried, but it's too late. That's that's the email I got, I believe.
1: Yeah. Well, because they had the original, which was uh, which is the the very early bird, but yeah, that was it. It sounds by the sounds of it, it was five minutes in they were they were all out. Yeah, and and I think that's because they gave so many of us an advance shot at it. Mm-hmm. And they're showing their prototyping. Uh, downside of this is delivery is November twenty sixteen, so over yeah. a year away.
0: It's not that far though. I mean, time really is rapid. You know, you, know, in, you know, and
1: and and for an industrial product. Uh, yeah, you know, it's probably not too unreasonable. Um, I would have liked to seen them, especially considering the experience they have, uh, have a closer fulfillment date. Because what they're doing is they're showing the schedule, so they have, um, so they're going to be manufacturing prototypes in January twenty sixteen. So all they've done is made one. They did some calculations, they got all the money, and then the, now they're going in. The advantage of doing it this way early on is that they do have firm quantities, and it helps them adjust for mass production of parts. So expecting next year, this time to be starting assembly and there were different donation levels. So if you donated enough, uh, you'd be assured you're getting one of the first kits and with enough money, they would let you come out and they would show you how to use it. So excellent. So this is no longer, uh, well, nothing at Kickstarter is a guarantee they've reached their funding goal. So now it's pretty much a shopping cart, buy it and get it. Well, we are going long. I'd say we're almost uh, a minute, uh, one hour and 20 minutes. By the time I get things cleaned up. So we need to talk about last we're, week's dive. I'm, yeah. That, well, let, let's talk about diving. I mean, I didn't dive and you didn't dive, but there are there well, are people not getting.
0: Last I dove last week.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You Last Thursday you dove.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh,
1: did anybody get out this weekend? Do you know? Were they still up north or were they?
0: They were up north until uh, Saturday. Yeah. It uh, like the, the, Saturday. Yeah. It
1: looked like the weather was getting bad up north. So a lot of people are coming back. Yeah. And but, then uh, it looks like Kevin hit a couple of museums and had some good luck.
0: Yep. Kevin's been out and about. And my my, my travels have been elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Now, I uh, did you make the mug club meeting this week?
0: No, I, I was down at U of M.
1: Okay. I didn't make it either. I was going to. My son had a tennis game, and it went, uh, so I couldn't make it to the meeting. So I didn't hear how that went. So.
0: Oh, it, it went pretty decent. I had sent... Uh, The diver survey that I had 7% response on, I sent copies of that for let's get some freaking surveys. Uh, I also sent the revised uh, admissions form. I updated it, put that out because we've got new members I do not have the correct paperwork for. I want that. And I sent out waivers that if we're having club members, I'd like to have a waiver signed by them, especially if they're participating in dives. So, we had a lot of paperwork, and they said they were extremely active, and a lot of people had lots of comments on a lot of things, and it carried over to Roma's.
1: Okay. Those are good comments, bad comments?
0: Good comments. I, everybody okay. was having a okay. lot of verbs. Well, well like when, you said- when you
1: start giving people legal forms and waivers, I was wondering was there. How that well, no, went? that
0: was the part. I, I did the administrative first part and said, please get that. Yeah. And then uh, they went into the diving and stuff, and everybody got really hot to trot because diving gets you hot to trot.
1: Yeah, and they're fine and stuff.
0: Yeah, so that was a, a really good event.
1: Okay. Is there any anybody going out this weekend, have you heard?
0: Uh, I don't know. I know I've, I'm sitting out with a neck brace on, so I'm good. <laughs> uh, so uh, it'll be an interesting. I won't be, I don't know if I'll be available next week or not. Okay, for well, the next ask, but, uh, understandable. Sure somebody, uh, yeah. Well,
1: ho- hopefully uh, your procedure goes well and we'll get you back in the water really soon.
0: Yeah, well I told him I needed to be in by by uh New Year's dive. <laughs> uh can't miss that one. No. Well we'll see if I need extra weight since I'll have some titanium in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. could you specify where the weight goes?
0: Right now it's around the hips, but the the new weight will be a little higher. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. So I would say we're to that time of the show. Thanks to everybody enough. who came in the chat room as the show went on. We had a few more people drop in.
0: How many, how many survivors do we
1: have? Uh, we've got uh, two who look to still be on, but we've had uh, probably six or seven who popped in throughout the show.
0: Oh, you must have St. Louis Sam die hard.
1: Yeah, he, he's, he's holding in there. Well, he, yeah, he's there. Yeah, he's back again. Yep, yeah, he's there.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll be talking to them later. Yep. Especially if we wind up doing actual video podcasts. It'd be nice to get some feedback. Do people want us to do video? Yep. If they want to have round robin. Yeah. Conference. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and that might be an opportunity. Maybe we could do two programs because the video is going to take a little bit more time. Uh, my thought is that maybe the video would be once a month and maybe it'd be, I don't know, a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Th- I'm trying to think of something because I, I think for video, I want most of us to be in the same location. So maybe we'll got kind of to find a spot set up. Uh, maybe, maybe we do it out of a dive shop or something or a dive boat. Uh, a few ideas there but uh yeah. want to make it interesting and i want to make it that you're seeing something that you need to see you know why why do video you don't you don't want to do the video to look at us <laughs> you want to see things that are underwater so maybe we have some videos of dives or maybe we do a little bit of narration about what we're seeing or what you're showing so you can see it so maybe instead of the normal wreck dives that you see where people play pretty music and you see this one single pan over a bunch of boards in the bottom maybe if something talked about the wreck or gave some details. Maybe that's what we'll do.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, hopefully more people will also put their little pins in the, uh, the the map, map. the fan map where people are.
1: Yep. And I do have some new things coming to the website. Uh, work got crazy again this week, so I didn't get it in, but we're real close. It's the features, all programmed, ready to go. I just need to do a little bit of tweaking and we'll make it live and we will need your help as listeners to get this going, but uh, it's kind of like the next phase for the website. But uh, it's that time of the show. Let's do it. There's a butcher tending to his shop when a dog walks in. The dog has a note in his mouth with a $10 bill. The butcher bends down and picks up the note out of the dog's mouth. Reading it aloud, he says, Two pork chops, please, and the dog sits. The butcher, highly impressed, packages two pork chops for the dogs, wraps them up, gives them the dog, while the dog picks up and exits the shop. The butcher was so blown away that he decided he was going to follow the dog on his journey home, so he closed up the shop. With the butcher following on the way home, the dog stopped at stop signs and waited for traffic. The dog got the stoplight, which is red. He waited for it to turn green before crossing the street. The butcher couldn't believe what he was seeing. The dog stopped at the bus stop. The bus pulled up. The dog remained on the bench. When the next bus came, the dog got on, and so did the butcher. After about five or six stops, the dog reached his destination, and him and the butcher exited the bus. The butcher follows the dog, one or two more streets, around the corner, stops short of the house at the end of the driveway. So the dog wops up to the door. He sets the pork chop down, scratches the door. Nobody answers the door. The dog stood on his hind leg, scratches the door harder. No answer. Frustrated, the dog goes to the side of the house, uses his paw to tap on the window. He goes to the front door, but nobody answers. The dog becomes frantic, starts to hurl his body at the door, slamming it into it as loud as possible. He slams and slams and slams. After about a minute of this, finally somebody opens the door, the dog owner was not happy to see him. He immediately started DL, calling the dog a complete idiot. The butcher who sees all this happening runs up the drive of the owner of the dog and tells him to stop. No, he exclaims, this dog is a genius. I followed him home. You wouldn't believe what I saw him do to get here. Oh, really, says the owner. Well, this is the third time he's forgot his keys this week.
0: <laughs> I should be well trained like that. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I know kids who can't do that. (laughs) Forget the dog.
0: Yeah, forget me.
1: (laughs) So on that note, go out and get wet.
0: And stay safe. And we'll be talking to you soon.